St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Welcome to another episode of the St. Leo 360 podcast. Once again, this is your host, Greg Lindbergh. On this episode of the podcast, it is a true pleasure to have a very special guest with us. He is a current student in our Master's in Emergency and Disaster Management program, which is online. And uh, he was a longtime member of the U.S. Army and is a retired sergeant major, and his name is Clifford Lovejoy. Lovejoy, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Greg, for having me. Absolutely. It's really a privilege. Right. And I know we've spoken before, and I know you just have many incredible stories that you've, you know, experiences in your life. So I'm definitely looking forward to capturing that here. Um, so to start off here, if you could just give us a, a brief bio about yourself, where you're from originally, where you grew up, and just your, your early years. Okay. Absolutely. Well, uh, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa in 1955, and if I may, I can only speak for me, I would like to share a tad bit of my story that shaped my life. And in order to do that, I would have to digress and uh, go back to 1961 at the tender age of six, as I was sitting in the living room waiting for my father to come home. And I heard the door, the car door close because he had just arrived. And I began walking to the front door and uh, greeted him. And he said, come on, son, I need to talk to you. And so I was walking with him toward the bedroom with my flip-flops on and my Bermuda shorts. And we sat on the bed and he said, son, I'm leaving. And I don't know when I'm coming back and you're going to be the head of the household. And he gave me a kiss, and he walked away. And as I embraced my G.I. Joe, my action figure doll, with my newfound responsibilities, I went to the window and looked out the window, processing or whatever a young boy would do because I was totally lost. And all of a sudden, I seen a movie because I seen my father running down the street with my mother chasing him with a butcher knife in her hand because she was trying to cut him. And he was able to jump into his car and drive away. And she sat on the side of the road and began weeping because of a promise not kept. And so obviously he had told her then with four kids and the rent was due that he was leaving, that he had to go find himself. And so Young Lovejoy made a promise to himself then, that day, that no matter what life held, uh, he would never do what he seen his father do. And so I would just say to those who are growing and going through some experiences, how does a young boy learn how to treat his mother when he never seen his father love her? What does right look like? Who becomes your role model? And so as I uh, began to navigate through school as the oldest of four kids, I wasn't gifted like the rest of the young fellows who could dribble a basketball and run fast and things of that nature. So I sat around and stood around and actually began talking to the young ladies because the boys appeared to 
want to impress them with their athleticism. And uh, ultimately, they got kind of mad at me because they said, look at young Lovejoy over there just talking when he should have been out playing with them. But uh, and so what what actually happened from there was I uh, had the opportunity to walk a young girl home and carry her books because that seemed to be the noble thing to do. And when I walked her home, all of a sudden, her mother was there to greet her. And because I carried her books, her mother was able to give me a slice of apple pie. And it was the best apple pie I've ever had in my life. And so I made a decision then that every day I was going to walk somebody home because I wanted some good food. (laughs) And uh, I was doing that. And then that's when all of a sudden in preparing to cross the street because I was walking the next young lady home. The there was a guy that came out of nowhere and came up to me and said, Lovejoy, what did you say about my mother? I didn't even know the guy. And all of a sudden he hit me in the mouth and my the books flew up in the air and he picked up the books and he took the girl and walked away and I laid there on the side of the road and uh was processing because that was my first experience of being bullied. But I couldn't go home and tell anyone because Back then, you would your mother would take you to that house, and you'd have to fight that kid. And I wasn't ready for that, so I I hid that experience. And uh, but the next day, uh, I was able to find a big kid and give him some candy, and kind of used him as a bodyguard. So I've always had a an imagination, so to speak. That's kind of how my childhood in Des Moines, Iowa went without a father as I began navigating through life. But luckily, I was able to uh, go to the YMCA and uh, have some experiences there uh, with table tennis and some other things. And there was a mentor who had come into my life, Marion Upright, who I guess he saw some sort of potential because I thought I was a Muhammad Ali or Clashes Clay at the time in table tennis. And so uh, I played all day and and was sort of gambling, actually, where I would maybe leave at the end of the day with 15 cents and you could buy a lot of candy. But what ultimately happened was that I was able to get involved with the YMCA and learn some of the principles and morals that they had there and go to summer camp and learn how to canoe, learn how to scuba dive, learn how to swim with all the styles of swimming and uh, judo, karate, badminton, soccer, all those things. Uh, and so I began to develop some skill sets and, uh, Outside of that, it was a wonderful place to grow up in, in in Des Moines, Iowa. So that kind of framed how young Lovejoy was uh, growing up. Right. I see. And then I believe you had mentioned it was a, a recruiter for the military that came to your school. And that's kind of what, what really piqued your interest as far as enlisting in the military down the road. Well, yes, absolutely. It was uh, actually on uh, Veterans Day. There was a special force of soldier that uh, came, and he was a guest speaker in our auditorium. And as all kids are there excited because a hero, someone important, is coming to speak. Um, and essentially, he shared with the entire group, the whole school, that school teachers are important, 
first responders, everyone, but there's one group of people that's responsible for saving the world, and that is America's service members, soldiers, sailors, Marines, all the airmen, all the different categories. And so if you want to be responsible for saving the world, join this group. And for some reason, I didn't really hear anything else that he talked about. And I centered in on, I want to be a part of a group responsible for helping save the world. So the seed was planted in my soul at that time. And from that moment on, I was battle-focused to find my destiny of being a member of a team and being responsible to help save the world. Very cool. And what uh, what age were you when, uh, if you recall, what age were you when that actually occurred? Ooh, I had to be around nine or ten, I believe. So very young. Absolutely. And you know, uh, today in school and even back then, there are people who are trying to recruit you to do other things. And so I was very fortunate between the YMCA and deciding then that I was going to be in the military uh, that that was a good thing. And so uh, ultimately, I was able to go into the military right after high school, but I think it happened in the 12th grade, actually, uh, in high school, where uh, because I knew that I was going into the Army and leaving, and I, and I was going to help save the world, and there was nothing nobody could tell me because Lovejoy was, was on his way. And Two days before graduation, we were in class, and the uh, instructor told us to told me to be quiet, and I wouldn't be quiet because I was on my way to wherever that was. So I got sent to the principal's office, and uh, ultimately, I didn't graduate. And after sitting there for four hours, I walked away and uh, thought it would happen by osmosis. There was no sponsor really in my life per se, in my household as 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 a role model and figure, and so I was shortly thereafter went into the army with the understanding that I had graduated, and uh, but I hadn't, and uh, they caught up with me very shortly after, and they made sure that I graduated from. Frankfurt American High School. And so my uh, military career was off and running where they could take a young man. And the military is the type of organization that they want you, no matter what your gender, to be the absolute best. And I began to excel because of everything that I learned in the YMCA. I was formally trained. Uh, gymnastics paid off with, with diving and swimming and there wasn't anything running or anything I could do. And so I was blessed actually to go from a private all the way up to uh, command sergeant major. And uh, it's a part of Army Special Operations, uh, which was charged with overseeing rangers, our aviation group, PSYOPs, and civil affairs. That was the uh, specialty that I had, civil affairs, which was to conduct civil military operations with humanitarian assistance and things of that nature. And so whenever you go into another country, the military, even though the Marines and everyone has a, a special role in the Air Force, when we 
finish whatever it is we're going to do, you have to put the city back together. And that's really where civil military operations comes about. I see. Now, if you could talk about some of the places you were deployed, and I know you mentioned, you know, other countries, just specific stories, anything that really stands out in your mind as far as your your army experience. Well, you know, that that's a good question because I believe it was back in April of 1999, and my career was very interesting because I was also, while I was a command sergeant major in civil affairs, I was also in the Army Reserve, and I was a GS-12 in the federal government, and I'd been selected to go to a senior academic school uh, at the Army Management Staff College. And at that point in time, in 1999, the Army Reserve really wasn't as active in the Army uh, in their operations as, as they are today. And so... Things took off for me because the Army G3, the three-star general at the Pentagon in charge of all operations for the Army, came in and gave a briefing. And so here's a warrior again. But this guy was six, seven or so. And he started showing what we were doing all over the world in the Army. And I decided then, having just received my senior service college academic evaluation report that kind of said some things that that I had complexities with ambiguities and I could was a critical thinker and some other things. I got the idea that I no longer wanted to be a weekend warrior and that I wanted to serve on the A team and be a part of the Army every day for real, for real. And so I sent him an email, got his email address from his business card and sent him an email and told him, he didn't have an active duty sergeant major that possessed the skill sets that I had, and I want to serve, and I want to serve now. Now, I don't know what gave me that, who who did I think I really, you know, am to, to do that, but I had a piece of paper that said I was pretty good for senior civilians, and I was command sergeant major, even though it was on the weekends. And so nothing happened for about six weeks, and all of a sudden, got a set of orders that I was ordered to the Pentagon to be the force readiness sergeant major for the Army. Out of out of the clear blue sky, I was at Fort Belvoir. I said goodbye to everyone. I arrived at the Pentagon. I sat in the parking lot, which has got to be the biggest parking lot in the world, and, and had a prayer that I didn't know if I had the skill set. And this was a prayer to God, naturally, that just that he would give me the strength to, to not fail in whatever uh, the country asked me to do. And so I went in, and much to my surprise, I was working down in the Army Operations Center, which is the bottom of this biggest building in the world. I mean, it took over a half an hour to get to the bottom of this place. You could even feel the air changing and some other things. <laughs> and so to be in this area, everything required a top secret security clearance and all kinds of stuff. And this is where they cover down the operations all over the world on what every service was doing. So that changed some things for me. And I began going to work as the force readiness guy and learning everything I could possibly learn. And they sent me to a lot of different schools 
to learn how to think, how to talk, forgetting all the normal stuff. And what's interesting about working at the Pentagon that most folks don't know is that if you're not a three-star general and you're in the Pentagon, you don't really count. Even a two-star or one-star general doesn't have a secretary. They have to do their own work. They don't have a staff there. So everybody that works there, even though you're the best and brightest in the military, you're an action officer. You don't have your own... To, to have a access to an airplane, you've got to be a three-star. To have a driver on a vehicle, you've got to be a three-star. To eat in the dining facility, the Pentagon dining facility, you can't eat there unless you've been invited by a three-star. So we're all action officers, and there I am working together with these colonels and one-stars sitting right next to me, you know, doing the same kind of work. And the interesting thing was, you had to learn how to collaborate because everybody worked for a three-star and whatever project you had, you had to move it forward and you couldn't threaten your counterpart with my general said because they had a general too. And so your successes was how well you could work with members of the staff to move the, the deliverable forward and to be able to complete the task. I believe a couple of things happened because the work was so hard and so long, the days, it, it had to be 14, 15 hours a day every day because there are problems all over the world. And when they are in those different countries, no matter who that ruler is, that president of that organization calls the president of the United States and asks him to please come and save his, their country. And in doing that, we have to put together a multitude of assets, both the State Department and all the other federal organizations we have. But ultimately, we send America's sons and daughters. So I was able to, to see how all of that works, got a lot of special training. And ultimately, I was chosen then to be the operation sergeant major for the whole Army. And as I reported in uh, to that three-star general directly, not having a clue what I should really do, he sat me down and said, Sergeant Major, this is the first time this position has been filled and don't really know what your duties are, but I want you to come back to me in 60 days and tell me what they are. And I saluted and moved out, and I went and met with the rest of the guys and Sergeant Majors and asked them what they did in their duties, and who did they work for? Did they have an office, a car, and all these things? And I put together a sheet of paper that showed red, green, and amber, what they had, what they didn't have. Some had blackberries, some didn't. Some had their own office, some didn't. And then I also uh, went out to all the operations sergeant majors throughout the Army and said, I'm the new guy on the block, and what is it I need to be doing for you? One of the sergeant majors, Dave Lady, in Europe said to me, Sergeant Major, who do you work for? Send me your organization chart, and which I did. And they had never seen in the field how big the Pentagon really is and what the operations cover down on across our full spectrum throughout the whole Army. And they invited me to Europe. And in doing that, they identified what all their problems were. And I then took it 
as a tasker, took it to our tasking section and began having the Army work on those issues. And uh, from that time, uh, the career was off and rolling. He also said to me, go see the Sergeant Major of the Army. He used to be my division Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major of the Army, Jack Tilly. And you take everything off of his plate that falls into operations, and you do it for him. And so I reported to the sergeant major of the Army. He thought I was crazy. Where is this guy Lovejoy coming from? But I was already selected and in the position. And uh, next thing you know, I got a phone call from him in Korea, and it changed the destiny. Knowing this, that all the senior leaders— in the different services, I'm talking about the top guy. They all have their own airplane, their own Learjet at Andrews Air Force Base with their rank on it. And uh, there I was flying on a Learjet, working issues. And, man, this was really amazing, you know, a young boy from Des Moines, Iowa. But really what changed the trajectory for my career was not only the top secret security clearance, because there are some assignments that you can't know about, some missions you can't be involved in unless you have the highest level clearance. You can't even be considered for that. So all of a sudden, I'm getting all the necessary things uh, that I needed. And when that general, I reported in to him and told him, here's the things that I believe I can do for you. He said, absolutely, but I'm telling you what I'm going to do for you, Sergeant Major. You're not going to have your own office. I'm going to put you in my Army Initiatives Group. It's a strategic analytical field with the best and brightest in the Army, and you're going to work with those people because you'll see and learn what we're doing everywhere, and you can better serve the SMA, the Sergeant Major of the Army. Now, I mumbled under my breath. Because I said, man, every other guy's got his own office, and I, I don't. But that turns out that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I was always flying with him everywhere with the chief of staff of the Army. And the only sergeant major that was there at those big conferences was a sergeant major of the Army. So it changed the way I would think and uh, uh, how I would uh, do things. And many of the assignments was really exceptional. Uh, but the ones that really stood out, I believe was, uh, as, as, if I could, I would, uh, I had an assignment as the Western Hemisphere Policy Integrator, working directly for the Secretary of Defense, uh, working counter-narcotics. Didn't know a lot about it, but operation orders and execution orders, I definitely understood. And so in that office, we were responsible for all the counter-narcotics missions around the world. I had the Western Hemisphere, which was primarily Northcom, and was learning every day, had a chance to, to go to a classified briefing with the Secretary of Defense, and there was a Navy SEAL that was in their briefing, and this was classified, so I won't talk about what was being discussed, except that Mr. Rumsfeld asked this SEAL a question that he couldn't answer. And, man, the way that that civilian talked to that general, it, it had my legs shaking. <laughs> I still shake today when I think about it. And so it changed the way I began thinking because I said to myself, and I was going to have to go in and do those briefings at some point in time. I'm never going to let that happen to me. And so 
everyone in the Air Force and the Marine Corps and the Navy that had to deal with me as the Secretary of Defense is above all the services. They hated talking to Sergeant Major Lovejoy because he always asked them why. Because I, I wanted to know, what, why are we doing this this way? And you know what? They couldn't answer the question some of the time. Ultimately, it had me when the deployment books came forward. I had to go all the way to the lowest level and talk to the guys who put the operation together. Because I discovered that the fact that life new toys and anything, anytime there was a new piece of equipment, we would test it out in our operations. And so uh, with that said, I wanted to know what all the asked, what all the lightning bolts meant when I looked at the, uh, in the operation books. And I mean, these books had like 200 pages. And so it was my job then to take the operation to the secretary of defense, get his approval on the deployment, the money was set aside, the operation would start in just a couple of days. The Coast Guard was set with his ships, we're gonna do everything, the FBI, all our law enforcement agencies were there ready to go after the bad guys, whatever it was gonna be, but it had to be approved. And so it was Lovejoy on point. And I couldn't afford to go in and and not answer a question and say, sir, I don't know the answer to that question, but I intend to find out because the operation was starting in the next day or so. And so was able to do that and learn a, a great deal of things. But what really happened that changed the trajectory of my destiny, I believe, is there was a briefing that was scheduled on the national drug strategy at the White House. And I was the action officer preparing the book, the briefing book for my boss. And all of a sudden, two days before, he said to me, Sergeant Major, I'm not able to go to the briefing. You've got to go in my stead. Now, for the first time in my career with 33 years of service to the nation, I knew that this was above my skill sets. And I looked at him frightened. If, if, if I could possibly be. And he said, you got this, Sergeant Major. And I couldn't tell him that I couldn't do it. And But for the first time, I was scared because not only did I not know what I was doing, but I was frightened because the attendees at the White House was the director of the FBI, the CIA, Interpol, all the lead guys. And there I am, just a sergeant major. What what can I do? What I didn't even belong there. All of this is running through my mind. I'm talking to everybody, and all I was doing was briefing the the drug testing policy for the armed forces. That's all. But I just knew that everybody knew more about drug testing than me. Not to mention everything else. And so I reported. That next day, and believe it or not, I didn't even know how to sit down. The acoustics, the, the uh, man, just everything was so fabulous. The microphones, the seats, the way they moved, and sitting next to guys who had Armani and Versace suits and had weapons strapped to their ankles. I was really impressed, and all I had on was a little military uniform. And so <laughs> the briefing started as we looked at our strategy. And different people were briefing different areas. 
But what stood out for me was the Customs and Border folks shared that they were struggling in our national parks because they didn't have all the equipment and couldn't cover down on the acreage. And that when people were smuggled into the country, there were people smuggled drugs and weapons, and these people were hiding out in the parks. You know, and so uh, we needed to get at it. Everyone took the approach that, as this guy was asking for help, that that's your problem because we were each funded for our specific areas. When it finally came down to me to do my briefing, I went through our drug testing program, I believe, in less than a minute and didn't even breathe. And afterwards, all of a sudden, something happened in the young sergeant major, and I called a timeout. And everybody looked at was at the table and looked at the young man with the stripes and the stars and the ribbons and wondered, what is he talking about time out? <laughs> and I said, listen, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we have an issue here and we have to get at it. I said, we have, and I don't know where this comes from. It had to be one of the employment deployments, my years of service serving. I said, we have America's sons and daughters deployed around the world. And they were deployed in short notice to go to that country. Many of them didn't get a chance to say goodbye to their children. And when they left, at a moment's notice, they're hunkered down fighting the fight. There is an expectation that their sons and daughters would be able to grow up in a drug-free environment. But that's not really the case because you're sitting here squabbling over rat turds about who should be doing what. Let me tell you this on why we need to take a timeout. We need to take a timeout because if we don't get this right, somebody is going to get benched. And what happens when you get benched is we then reach down into the bench and we pull someone up. And we put them in your position. And then that person recognizes what needs to be done and they get it right. And then you're sitting on the side and you realize and want to raise your hand. Okay, I understand the commitment. I'm really now willing to do it, but you won't get a second chance because we've moved on. But you're going to get that second chance now because we're going to take a time out. We're going to pause for the cause. And we're going to come back and we're going to get these funding issues sorted and we're going to get it right because America's sons and daughters are counting on you, the members of this room, the aging, to get it right. We took the pause. Everyone came and began talking to me and apologizing. I don't even know where it came from. I, it wasn't even a part of my portfolio. I wanted to apologize. When we finally left, I couldn't wait to go back to the Pentagon because when you get fired, you know that you're fired because none of your cards work. You can't get to your office. Your computer won't be, it doesn't work, and you, you're being escorted out of the building. So any, I couldn't wait to get to my boss to tell him what happened, which I didn't know except that I fumbled the football. And he said, and he cut me up, said, Sergeant Major, that's why I sent you. We got this. Every day I waited to realize that I was fired. Finally, after two weeks, we were called back, and I had to go back to the White House, and I received a special award. And the award was simply that 
the impasse was resolved and they were able to work through the funding issues and the drug strategy moved forward. And it was because I shared those things and sacrifices that America's sons and daughters made during the deployment. And some of those men and women apologized and said they had forgotten and, and thanked me for keeping them battle focused. And so it uh, just goes to show you that uh, years of experience and, and training and other things, what it could really do for you. So that was probably one of the highlights uh, of my life uh, serving uh, besides being in combat and watching every day what those heroes do as they would go out the front gate, knowing that many of them would not be coming back and that they was doing it for the nation. And you could always tell when someone was new in a combat zone, because if you were on a, a main post, a main base cluster, the dining facility, and I never understood why we could eat so well in combat until later on I realized why that was so, because we had to feed you well because it could be your last meal. And so eating was, was never... Uh, an issue of, of eating good food. And so whenever I seen people with uh, lobsters, three or four lobsters on their plate, I knew that they were, they were new. But within it, what was really interesting uh, that shaped everything for me was that as the CJ-1 Sergeant Major for the Multinational Force Iraq, I had the opportunity to review along with some other members of my team, every award that every service member would receive as it was sent to the four-star general for approval. And all we were doing was looking at this administrative piece. But I was able to read these stories and look at what our heroes were really doing, regular folks, everyday people, and what they did when the IED blew up and how they were surrounded by the enemy and what they did to save their fellow soldiers who were wounded and other members on their team, not to mention reading the casualty reports every day. It just, day in and day out, it just shaped the way that I thought, and and it was just amazing. And you know what you really learned with all of that is that uh, – we take a lot of things for granted here in the United States uh, every day as we wake up. But there are men and women all over the world protecting us, laying their lives on the line. And at the same time, there are people in those other countries who look to the United States of America to come and save them, to help them. And believe it or not, having been assigned to embassies, one of the things I discovered, and I'm closing with this on this piece, is that even in Rome, Italy, Budapest, Hungary, every embassy, they have what's called embassy role, where you have embassies from the different major countries. But the only embassy that had people lined up down the street and around the corner was the U.S. embassy. Everybody wants to come to America. No man. So I was thinking Italians have Ferraris and the best wine. Why does every Italian want to come to America? The Koreans, everybody, because this is the only country where if you have a dream and skill sets, 
the reality can come true. And so we have people who are defending it. We have everybody that wants to come here. And then we have the folks here that are every day that don't necessarily appreciate it. And so I'm just privileged to having been on the team and just doing my very best to help keep America great. That's very well said. No question. I know you were uh, in the Pentagon on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And I, I was wondering if you could kind of recount some of that story and just describe the the atmosphere, you know, everything that kind of happened when uh, when the one plane hit the Pentagon. Yes. Uh, let me pause for just a moment and, and kind of get my breath, because uh, I'm told that my index trauma for PTSD was was based on that event. Sure. And so. Actually, it was a, a regular day, just like any other day, except we had been preparing to take 400 soldiers to the Battle of Atitum on a staff ride. And we've been working on this for about four months. The final in-progress review with 25 sergeant majors was with me, along with other members of the team, to prepare to go on the the staff ride. And on the staff ride, one of the first things that we were going to do was go to the White House and don our new berets with the president and visit uh, Congress and go through uh, the different branches. So everything was set. All the approvals had been given. Everything was done. And all of this was going to transpire on the 12th of September. So this is the final IPR. I'm ready. My destiny was going to be defined on uh, what would happen with the staff ride and the visit to the White House, taking 400 service members from each branch. And the IPR started at 0900 hours. Shortly thereafter, in the middle of the briefing, there was a loud boom. Some of us immediately knew something happened because the whole building appeared to shake. And as the first two went out the conference room, I was the third one to go. As soon as I exited the conference room, it was like football. Everybody was running in every direction and slamming into people. And I immediately went to my right following those two service members who were first. And bam, I ran into a lady, and she pushed me to the left. Mm -hmm. And as I stumbled, I found myself on a staircase, and it was like I was in a starting can, and I couldn't move. Things had changed, and I was in a twilight zone, and I didn't know what was happening. And, and as I was able to ultimately get out of the staircase, out of the sardine can, and was in center court. There was smoke everywhere, and everyone was moving in slow motion, and no one was talking, and no one was giving instructions, and all of a sudden, the medics were moving, and everyone began going to the left, and I went to the left as well, and all of a sudden, we were out of the Pentagon, and 
into the parking lot and hundreds and hundreds of people were running and no one was saying anything. And I believe that I had some skill sets, but someone needed to say something and thousands of people was running at the same time and no one was saying anything. And as I observed, even women would fall down and pick their high heels up and would run like it was a hundred meters and explosions were taking place in vehicles. And there were people who were run over because someone got into the vehicle and hit them. Everyone was just running in every direction. All of a sudden, I found myself as I grabbed a battle buddy and I was standing on the middle of I-95. And you could either look to the north or the south. As I looked to the north, I could almost see all the way to Philadelphia. And traffic was backed up for miles. And no one was moving in the middle of the highway. Everyone was confused. I could almost see to the south all the way to Fort Bragg, to Virginia. And I was totally lost. And the only thing I remember at the time was uh, the general order of guard duty that I will not leave my post until properly relieved. But I didn't know what had happened and I hadn't been relieved. And and everyone that was in the Pentagon, wherever they were, I could only speak to the hundreds that were around me. We were talking and walking because clearly it was the end of the world. Mm. No one knew what happened. All communications were cut off and we were just walking. Some people decided to walk home, but because I had a uniform on with the type of shoes, I couldn't walk. And so what had happened? No one knew. No communications. Hours went by. We were thirsty. Couldn't hear any radio that none of the facilities and stores we went to would give us anything. I didn't have any, I had my identification and my billfold was in my office. I didn't have any money for water. I was able to borrow $5, $10 from a sergeant major friend and was able to get some water and was actually lost like the many others who were still roaming the streets that was in the downtown Washington area. The Pentagon Mall is across the street. Everyone was a was put out of every building. And it was thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were just moving in every direction, totally lost, with no comms anywhere that I could see. Ultimately, on or about 10 o'clock or so, I was able to get back to the Pentagon because I knew that I couldn't abandon my post. And and now I had to find a way to get in. And I I had the right identification because the Pentagon was now identified as a crime scene. And only mission essential folks could get in. And I had the identification that showed I was a member of the Army Operations Center. And I was able to ultimately get in. Those, as I signed in with everyone that was getting accountability, I was told that I was missing in action Hmm. and that we had had accountability for some of our folks and some we did not. At that point in time, the young boy within Sergeant Major Lovejoy realized that I had teammates that I needed to get to and I needed to get to my office to find out was anyone still alive? 
So I went into an area that all of a sudden showed that the wires were hanging from the walls, the water was busted, and I had water up past my knees. The temperature had changed, and it had to be over 100 degrees. I had to take my shirt off and and everything. I I was lost, and, and I was moving forward. And and I knew the Pentagon well, but it had changed because the staircase, the escalators were now looking like bobby pins that were twisted and nothing looked the same. There was no sound and water and it was pitch dark and I was moving and just to go 200 meters or so, it took a couple of hours. Wow. And as I was navigating and moving forward, I finally got to an area. And everything changed for me because I could go no further. And as I looked, there was the plane with all first responders doing what they do to save and help. And I was totally lost because I know this was a nightmare and I lost my faith this day at this particular time because I knew that Jesus had come and I got left behind. And I became very angry that the good people were taken to heaven and I was left here because I wasn't worthy and I still had tasks to do. And that is where I was. And so I kept moving, setting that aside. And I got to my office and checked the locations and deaths were everywhere and there were no bodies found. And so I did my duty to, well, what I thought my duty was to find my teammates and found a bag that, that had my keys to my vehicle and other things, and it put it on my shoulders, and it took another couple of hours to, to get out of that area to, to get back to the, the parking lot, and I was ultimately able to, to get home uh, that evening or, or so at 2 or 3 in the morning, and when I did, I was in trouble already. Uh, as I got home because they were doing accountability and I had been listed as missing in action. And when I finally got home and, and began to share what I was struggling with and what the challenge was, I was told then that I had fumbled the football because I had loved soldiers more than my family and that I failed to check in. And that is true that I, I failed to check in. And I, I share with all service members that whenever they can, in the middle of a crisis, as soon as they can, check in not only to your higher headquarters, but to your loved ones so they can know that you're all right, because they're going through a mess. The whole world was going through a mess, but I was going through a mess as well, and I was lost and uh, was given a class then about the hierarchy of love and that I was out of step with some things because I loved service members more than my family, but that was not really the case. I was just lost. And as I reported into duty the next morning at 0500 hours, battle focused that the world had changed as I climbed the staircase and was clear to, to enter each step that you took, it got it was warmer and warmer, and I observed that there were two, these two ladies, and they had these handkerchiefs, and they were calling on God and praising Him and asking Him to give us strength and encouraging us to, to believe in God and, 
everybody who walked past these women were able to get a little bit of strength on what they were saying. And they weren't anyone dressed fancy. They were just ladies with handkerchiefs in their hands. And later I'm told and believe that they were angels as well. Angels are simply people who are given a mission by God to respond and go to a designated place. And because evil had occurred, those two women had received that assignment to go there and just to pray on that facility. And no one asked them for their identification. They didn't have any badges, but yet they were cleared to, to do that. And as I passed them, I went into the restroom and to get myself together and and just ask that I not fail whatever the mission would be. As I got to the Army Operations Center, I pulled my team together and we had jumped. All of our offices had been destroyed. We had moved remotely to one location. We were they were at relocating people from Capitol Hill to Site R, all the congressmen, representatives, everybody, every operation around the world is working as much as it could work. I pulled the team together that I knew, the enlisted members, and said, team, the nation has called us to be here at this appointed time. And so I don't know who you believe in, but you need to talk to them right now because we are the chosen ones. And so if you don't mind, we're going to hold hands and have a moment to get battle focused. And as we held hands, I began praying and I just simply asked God to, to give us an increase in strength and knowledge and skills and abilities and let us not fail our nation and our families. And we went about our business of, of doing what we were supposed to do. On that day, I discovered the role of a sergeant major. You can read and study and, and go through multiple deployments, but I discovered then that the role of a sergeant major became very challenging, and I discovered really what it was because every colonel that went to the general to ask for guidance or with an idea the general said to them, have you talked to the sergeant major? Well, hell, all of a sudden I had all these folks coming to talk to me to run ideas by me, and I had no clue. They was the best and brightest, but I was smart enough, and I knew what I didn't know, which was not much. But there were some things I knew, and that was just very few things, and I knew enough to take notes to keep accountability of, of what was going on. And so I realized then more than anything that I needed to talk to another sergeant major. And so I, there was only two sergeant majors. It was clear to be in the facility at the, in the Pentagon at that time, the sergeant major, the Army, and myself. Hmm. And so I called the other sergeant majors as I got the list of the primary sergeant majors in the Army staff and asked them what they were doing for their soldiers. And they told me the things that they were doing, and there was at least eight of them, and each one was doing something different. And I now had accountability, and I told them what I was doing. Before you know it, I had a list of 56 things that needed to be done. And wow, I could shoot, move, and communicate now because Lovejoy was all over. 
And I knew then that those sergeant majors needed to, to be in the building as well to support their generals so they could see the operation. And I was able to get them cleared to come into the facility in the same of the Army Operations Center. And every morning there was a briefing with the chief of staff of the Army, the principal staff, on where we were, what we could see, who we thought it was, and what our game plan would be thus far. I made sure that as I brought those sergeant majors in and was clear, they could get the same briefing that every general received that was on the staff. And those sergeant majors then it changed their way of thinking. And I was able to share with them, my fellow Sergeant Majors, America's Army is at war. And when the Army G3 asked you for anything, your response is, Roger, are we tracking? They said, absolutely, Sergeant Major, Roger. And from that moment on, we were shooting, moving, and communicating. The entire city began coming together. There were tents set up. There was food. We were working long hours, and an awful lot was was going on. What was really challenging, I believe, at the time was that we brought all the families together. If you had someone missing that worked in the Pentagon, you were brought to the Sheraton Hotel, told to report there, to ultimately get a status. So we had teams set up there, but there wasn't much we could do for you until someone, because the searching was ongoing, digging through the rubble, and it was rubble for days, as they had dogs with masks on them and just everything. And so we had service members who were escorting the family members, and it was not friendly because things were not clear and uh, as, as clear as it could be. And the family members were angry and a lot was really happening because some guys had girlfriends. And so their girlfriend showed up. The wife showed up from Alabama and they met. And the, hmm. the service member was not there to articulate his situation. And it was the soldier who was stuck in the middle, the escort, who caught head. Teams came together Everything was happening like it was supposed to happen and uh, couldn't believe that uh, in a crisis, America would, would come together and do what it was supposed to do. But what's interesting, as you ventured outside of Washington, folks didn't care. And so while all traffic and airlines and everything was restricted and different procedures and every service member somewhere wanted to be a part of who did this to us and was ready to get at it. And I was scheduled to go to the Sergeant's Majors Academy to be the guest speaker two weeks after 9-11 for uh, Army transformation But uh, and was able to still go. But they didn't want to hear about transformation. They wanted to hear about the attack on the Pentagon. So I'm standing in front of hundreds of sergeant majors, special forces, and everyone who was students who who wanted to do something and wanted to know what really happened. And I simply shared my story of of what I saw and what I did, and and which wasn't much except to ask them, make sure you tell your family um, that you're all right. 
because that's that's critical. And I had no idea that some people seen the plane coming and happened to be on the phone and and shared it with their family members. And so I'm I'm still in the doghouse today from how I handled that with my family calling and reporting home. But it was a wonderful moment to share with them, those service members and to watch our country come together. And that day I lost two service members. Uh, that was in that conference were with me uh, as they went to the right and I went to the left and I was pushed to the left by that lady who I'm told later, this is a Cliff Lovejoy's belief per se, that that was an angel that pushed me because the jet fuel had come down that corridor and took out those two service members as well, along with many, many others. And so I really wasn't supposed to be here today had she not pushed me uh, in the direction that she did to the left of, of where I was going. And so, again, I do know that there's angels walking on this earth. Uh, who have different missions, and I had the opportunity to meet three that day. And as I observed the many, many noble things that many, many civilians and members of the force did, uh, it was just miraculous, the, the, the courage that they had. And uh, I don't claim to be a hero by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I'm just a member on the team and, and made a promise that day as I went to those funerals at Arlington Cemetery, uh, because Sergeant Major Ivory was my best friend and his wife was a minister and a lieutenant colonel and so was mine and at the time and we were uh, working to be the best Sergeant Majors we could be. And I was struggling with his loss and the loss of my best friend, who, what was I going to do now? And so I made a promise that I would every 9-11 go to Arlington and I would constantly check on his children and would continue to serve until uh, the Army kick me out. And so I've been able to, to keep that promise for the most part and proud to say that uh, while that was not a good day for the nation per se with the loss of the many folks that we had, the way we, we responded and came together and ultimately accomplished the mission years later, it just a sign that uh, we're still the greatest country in the world. And I've been able to verify and validate that everybody everywhere wants to be in America. And so that's why we catch it. That's why we have some of the challenges, because when you're the greatest country in the world, and you look at Rome, the Roman Empire, and all those other places, today it is the United States of America. And the U.S. Armed Forces is charged with helping keep it that way. And so that is a snapshot of my recollection and some of my experiences uh, during 9-11. Just incredible. I, I really appreciate, you know, you sharing that story and being so upfront with everything. And I know it's it's got to be tough to retell just having gone through that and everything. And so can't thank you enough for sharing that. I know that you you did ultimately serve for 39 years in the Army, and from what I understand, it was health reasons that uh, ultimately is the reason that you did have to, to leave the military. 
Yes, it it was. And, you know, the, it's interesting that it doesn't matter what your gender and uh, what ethnicity you have, that you you have an opportunity, if you do, to serve on the greatest team in the world. And I got a chance to, to do that and be with the absolute very best, whose sole mission was to to save the world in, in multiple combat ap- operations. But one day, no matter how good you are and what you've learned and how you serve, you can get sick, you can get injured, you can get shot because the mission of the United States Army is to protect uh, the United States of, of America and to win its wars. That's the mission of the, the United States Army. And so, in doing that, you can get injured in training or in combat, or you can get sick. Leukemia, all any of those things, you're not exempt from that. And so, young Lovejoy, yes, I got sick, and I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, had gotten very, very sick. And one of the interesting things you learn, and, you know, there was a standard joke at one time, but it wasn't a joke to me, which was, if Denzel Washington would have served in the Army, he would have looked just like Sergeant Major Lovejoy. And so there I was at the top of my game, the absolute very best. With that illness, as as I was told through a phone call that I was diagnosed with cancer, it changed some things. And the, the interesting thing as you begin uh, dealing with the, the military is, Again, as I mentioned, it's about fighting and winning America's wars. If you no longer can fight, you got to go. Thank you for your service, my brother, and all that you've done. But you have to leave. And we're going to help you get well. We're going to fix it if we can. But you can no longer fight. And so your time is up. And so people, I began struggling and challenged at that point in time because what was I really going to do? I didn't, and, and you know, cancer is something that I had not been prepared for nor trained. And so, hell, I'm a soldier. Don't tell me I got cancer and I can't serve. And so it was taking me from one side to the other. And I struggled tremendously because I, at this time at Joint Base San Antonio, wanted to talk to another sergeant major who had cancer. And we had some HEPA rules that you you couldn't tell me who had cancer. And hell, I, I needed a man to talk. I didn't want to talk to those women who were trying to help you and talk to you about cancer. And yeah, so I got an answer to the question of we were having a town hall meeting for wounded warriors and the Secretary of Defense was coming. And I'd just been diagnosed. I got something to tell this brother because I ain't got long to live. And so what you going to do? It's over for love, Joy. And I went and I was there with all the other wounded guys and girls. And while my illness didn't appear to be that serious because I still had all my body parts and I wasn't in a wheelchair, I was 300 and some pounds and couldn't breathe. And, and I was a Pillsbury Doughboy for a lack of a better definition. And the, the sec death had said what he needed to say. And he asked us, is there any questions? And all of a sudden, again, in that young sergeant major, there was a young boy that stepped out, and I stood up and I raised my hand and said, Sir, Sergeant Major Lovejoy, with 38 years of service to the nation, I don't have a question. I have a comment that I'd like 
is here with you on behalf of the wounded warriors here. Now, the congressmen were there, news media, all the senior military officials, and they all wanted to tell and hail that who let a sergeant major up in here? And everybody, news media, cameras were focused, and I didn't care. I was Pillsbury Doughboy, and I, I simply shared, Mr. Secretary, I want to talk to you quickly about Military City USA, San Antonio, Texas. It's like no other city in the world. The civilian community truly loves its military members here. And we are one team and we're battle focused. Every other city professes to be focused and support their military cities, but uh, organizations, but they're really just faking the funk. This is where it really happens. But Mr. Secretary, what I want to really talk to you about is the Center of Intrepid and Brooks Army Medical Center. Those two medical facilities not only save life, but what most, what's most importantly about them is they heal families and keep them together along with the whole community. And so my request, Mr. Secretary, is quite simple. As you prepare to head back to the nation's capital and you board your Learjet with the distinguished senators who are here with you today, and your pilot has to bank left or bank right because of a foreign object that's left San Antonio, fear not, because simply it's an angel who's received their wings because we've saved another life and we've killed another family. And so the request on behalf of all wounded warriors, Mr. Secretary, is spare these two facilities of any budget decrement because they are healing families and saving lives. That is our request, Mr. Secretary. My name is Lovejoy and I'm Army Strong. And I sat down with my obesity and the secretary looked at me and I was waiting because I've been diagnosed for nine days and I'm going to die any day. So what you going to do? And he said to me, pointed his finger, well, George, in all my years of service to the nation, I have never heard anything so eloquently said. And my commitment to you and each and every wounded warrior that is here today is there will be no budget cuts to these two facilities. As I head back to the nation, I am the Secretary of Defense, and that is my commitment to you. Right. And everybody began clapping and was thankful, and that was really kind of it, except that two days later, I went to the hospital commander, and I said, sir, said I need some help. We're doing a lot of things here, but we've got men who are in the closet who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and they're separating from their spouses, and they're lost, and we need to bring them together. I need your help in doing that because I'm not going to die alone. Now, real smart hospital commander, he flipped the script and said, you know what, Sergeant Major, I got you. He said, but what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I said to him, I, we need a support group. And we need to flex our muscle and show our capabilities here. And he said, got you. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We'll have a support group, and I'll fund it, providing that you facilitate it. And go see my communications folks and tell them what I said. See what you can do from there. 
I went and talked to them. Next thing you know, I'm at Lackland Air Force Base, and I asked every man in the steam room who has prostate cancer. And believe it or not, every man in there raised their hand, at least 19 of us. And everybody began talking about their story and how they were diagnosed. And I put together the team that would help put together a video with our family members. And we stood up a prostate cancer support group uh, to help us understand uh, how we were going to do it. And I, I would just close with that was the best medical facility in the world, along with Walter Reed. Uh, but the challenges men face are really unbelievable. And for me, everything came full circle when I had a chance to talk in front of uh, each and every one of the family members at our first meeting and gave them their mission, which was essentially that your husband is going to begin cheating on you. And they looked at me and everybody, because there's Lovejoy again. He tells the truth. And I said, but he's not going to begin cheating with another woman. He's going to begin cheating because he's going to move out of the bedroom and he's going to move into another bedroom and he's going to begin self-medicating and he's going to begin dancing with Jack Daniels or Jim Beaton and taking his Percocet and some other things because the radiation and the chemotherapy that he's going through, he can't feel anything. He has not stopped loving you. It's just simply that he's not the man that he's used to be and everything irritates him because of the medication and the radiation. And so he can't stand to be touched. He still loves you. So don't abandon him. But don't let him be in that room by himself. And so what I asked you to do is, even if he forces it on you, you go through that room and you check every drawer and under the bed to make sure that if there's any medication, any alcohol, that you're tracking it because we can't come into your home and, and check what's happening there. And you have that responsibility. If you do that, it'll help us as we keep going forward. And there were a lot of people angry with me uh, for sharing that secret that uh, we struggle with that. But yeah, and so I ultimately uh, had to leave the military because of my illness, uh, but that didn't stop me from remaining committed to helping uh, America's sons and daughters. Oh. Yeah, that's that's wonderful that you, you know, would take the time to you know, in, in dealing with your own situation there and really helping others. I mean, that really shows just the kind of individual you truly are. So uh, in the interest of time, uh, Lovejoy, I was wondering if we could maybe follow up with you again next week to talk about St. Leo and just your whole experience as a student with us and if that would be okay. Yeah. Uh, do we have at least five more minutes? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. One of the things I, I wanted to share why I had the moment, you know, because we've got we've got some things going on with the virus and, and everybody's doing everything. And I, I may not get a second chance, but, you know, because I'm in that vulnerable population of being over 60 and what's happening in Georgia right now as we begin to test with the CDC. And so I just wanted to share that uh, one of the things that's very important with nonprofits is we have an organization called Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And it's really 25 years of caring for the families of the fallen, for the service members, kids who and, and, and spouses who, uh, as they perish. 
and have been killed in combat. And so the question becomes, as I've been a part of this nonprofit as a military mentor, we need some help. We need those veterans to step up and and volunteer and get involved. And, and it's because I discovered that those great Americans who have given their life for the country, who cares for their children after they're gone? Who really looks after them? Some of them didn't have brothers and sisters to reach down. And so, yeah. But more importantly, we have losses to suicide. And when you kill yourself, there's a lot of shame associated with that. And, and so the families become lost. And this program works with all of that. But the families become lost. The spouse who's still left. The kids that are there, the way they're treated in their communities, the military gives you the Heisman because you got to go, you know, here's some benefits, but you're out. And so, and they don't know why he or she killed themselves. And so they're lost. And so I've had the opportunity to be a part of this program and work with young kids who, whose brothers have killed themselves and and it's been one of the most rewarding times of my life as, as I serve as a mentor. And, and I ask any service member who's a veteran, who's available and healthy, uh, please consider working with TAP uh, because the sons and daughters, it's our responsibility that their parent is no longer here to send a hand to make sure that they're looking in the right direction and still have hope. And so not knowing what's going to happen in the very near future, maybe we could link up or not. I wanted to just say that and thank you for taking the time to allow me to, to share my life story thus far and uh, this nonprofit organization that means the world to me. My name is Love Joy, and I'm still Harmon Strong. Very well said. I appreciate you mentioning that, Sergeant Major. That's such a wonderful cause. And we, we definitely would love to talk to you further about that on the next episode. To hear more episodes of the St. Leo 360 podcast, visit stleo.edu forward slash podcast. To learn more about St. Leo's programs and services, call 877-622-2008. Two zero zero nine, or visit saintleo.edu.